Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. Each week I listen to loads of great stuff from all over the world and share the very best of it with you. Coming up today, searching for Bigfoot on Wild Thing. He saw one. A Bigfoot. He said he'd never seen anything so big. And he says, I shit my pants. An 11-year-old from Canada ponders some of life's big questions. How do we fix climate change? What happens after we die? What is love? Why do we dream? And should you trust your gut? Inside Health from the BBC translates the latest medical research into accurate advice. If you're over 70 kilograms, then low-dose aspirin, which is the, the standard now in most countries, is ineffective in preventing vascular events, but still causes bleeding. And after the butterfly effect, John Ronson returns to answer questions raised by a porn star's apparent suicide in the last days of August. I lost the woman I love to a bunch of people's stupid opinions on social media. So am I supposed to just roll over? Take it? Just say, oh, well. At what point do you stand up? And if you'd like to share any good podcasts you've been enjoying recently, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. The first time I ever saw Bigfoot, I was only about seven or eight. Okay, it was just some jerky video footage of a hairy figure walking along a riverbed looking back over its shoulder, but it still left a lasting impression. From listening to the podcast Wild Thing, I've learnt that this famous film is called the Patterson-Gimlin film. It was recorded back in 1967 by two guys in California. And whether this film is a fake or not, and there are plenty of theories out there that it is actually a hoax, the story of Sasquatch, of a hairy hominid living out in the wild, is widespread and enduring. Laura Krantz found out that she'd got a distant relative who'd devoted his academic career and risked his reputation on finding Bigfoot. So she spent a year in the lab and out in the wild on the hunt for the big guy, tiptoeing between the sceptics and the believers to explore the legend, some of the wacky theories about it, and what modern science is saying about it today. 
I'll speak to Laura in just a moment about what she found out, but here's some of the first episode of Wild Thing. It's called Grover, and it's about that distant relative of Laura's I mentioned. Despite the fact that Grover died back in 2002, he's still a legend in the Bigfoot community. His work remains the foundation for the more serious side of Sasquatch research. But even Grover publicly admitted that he started out as a skeptic. Did I think they were real? No, no way. I was here at Washington State University for about two years uh, before I um, finally got hold of some uh, direct information, uh, a pair of footprints. One of them was obviously crippled. That set of footprints, found in 1969 outside an old mining town in northeast Washington, changed his mind. In Grover's professional opinion, they were too realistic to ignore. The design of foot that's implied by the crippling was exactly what you would expect for uh, a creature about eight feet tall and enormously heavy. If somebody faked that and put all these subtle hints of the anatomy design in that, he had to be a real genius, expert at anatomy, and um, very inventive and original thinking. And so, with that, Grover threw himself into Bigfoot. He spent the remainder of his life looking because he knew that while he considered Bigfoot to be a flesh and blood creature, he would need to provide concrete proof before the rest of the world would accept it as fact. His work in this topic, along with his academic credentials, made him the preeminent expert on Sasquatch. Now, Bigfoot scholarship is, surprise, a very small field. So maybe it's not that hard to be preeminent. But it was something he pursued publicly, at risk to both his personal and his professional life. Bigfoot wasn't particularly popular with the anthropology faculty at Washington State University. That's where Grover had tenure. Even the chair of anthropology, who was a friend, said Grover was seen as an embarrassment to the department. His obsession seriously delayed his academic career and almost cost him a promotion. He's still the butt of jokes in anthropology circles. But Grover's students loved him. He just cared about, cared about his students. Brilliant and lovely and a wonderful man and a loving guy. Just cared about, cared about people who were serious about what he was studying. They described his courses to me as exhaustive, thorough, meticulous, organized. Former students said they learned a tremendous amount. He mostly played it straight in the classroom and only gave one scientific lecture on Bigfoot every year as part of his Anthropology 101 course. That was enough to hook students like Chris Spencer. He's shaped my opinion of Sasquatch. Chris went to Washington State in the 1990s. We met at a Bigfoot campout in Oregon. Yeah, a Bigfoot campout. More on that later. But when he realized I was related to Grover, he immediately started talking about how Grover's class was one of his favorites. That one Bigfoot lecture turned Chris from just another anthropology student into a believer. I'm one of those people, I'm totally on the scientific side of it. It's flesh and blood. I don't, I don't believe Sasquatch has supernatural powers or anything like that. And I tend to, my whole opinion of Sasquatch is kind of based upon Grover's opinion of it. He was one of many people who cited Grover as their entry point to Bigfoot, their guide for studying the beast. Why? Well, 
Grover took a very scientific approach to the evidence, and he established how scientists should study Sasquatch if they take it seriously. He analyzed footprints for anatomical accuracy, dismissing many as fakes. He constructed biomechanical models and considered the creature's evolution using the latest anthropological findings. He took something that seemed like total nonsense and applied the same rules that he would apply to any other scientific inquiry. His approach to the Bigfoot question was, as one former grad student put it, Typical Krantz. I mean, everything he did was thorough and logical. Totally runs in the family. And speaking of family, this was a man completely devoted to his work and his Irish wolfhounds. And the dogs are important. I'll talk about them in a future episode. But somehow he found the time to get married. Four times, to be exact. I don't know much about his first three wives, but you could say it was Bigfoot who introduced Grover to his fourth wife, Diane Horton. Back in the 1980s, she was living in Denver, having finished her master's in biology. She was already curious about Bigfoot when she read about Grover's work. I saw Grover's name in a newspaper. And so I wrote to him because it said he was a professor. And I'd never heard of anybody who was in academia that said anything positive about Sasquatch. They exchanged letters and then finally met in person. When they married, Diane helped Grover with his Bigfoot research, which involved overseas travel to the Soviet Union and China to discuss Bigfoot's distant cousins. And there were road trips around the Pacific Northwest conducting interviews with eyewitnesses. We went to interview this guy who had seen Bigfoot. And he was this backwoodsman-type farm boy, just humongous guy, probably 250 pounds, all muscle. And... He, he said that he was out there shoot, uh, hunting deer, and he saw one. A Bigfoot. He said he'd never seen anything so big. And he says, I shit my pants. <laughs> and he blushed. And it was like, wow, if that guy did that. She thinks that she and Grover collected about 20 of these eyewitness accounts. But Grover also got all these testimonials in the mail. Confessionals, they called them. Because the person would write, I'm 87 years old. I have to tell you what happened when I was 10. I've never told anybody before, but I have to get this off my chest. People who'd kept their experience a secret for decades. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they didn't want to be laughed at. But they all saw something that stuck with them. They believed. And he had hundreds of those letters. With a brief little story, I was out by the barn and this Bigfoot thing walked by. Sadly, Grover didn't keep them. He just tossed them away. Because what he wanted was evidence and proof. And eyewitness accounts weren't enough. He was a scientist to the core. But you might not have known that from how he dressed. He always wore these safari jackets and the little, like, fisherman hat. So that gave him the idea that he was a, a hunter or something rather than a professor. He didn't wear suits. A hunter who preferred sleeping in his own bed. But he didn't like camping in, in a tent. He didn't like a tent. He had his van all fixed up with a bed. And a, I wanted him to go, you know, let's take a tent. We can go farther. But um, no, he didn't. 
I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably going to be a little harder to find Bigfoot if you're not willing to spend a couple nights deep in the woods. I've talked to a lot of people about their Bigfoot sightings. You'll hear their stories in the upcoming episodes. But most of them were out in the wilderness somewhere, well off the beaten path. Some of episode one of Wild Thing called Grover, produced and presented by Laura Krantz. And I spoke to Laura and asked her if she could remember the very first time she'd heard about Bigfoot. What I remember most is there was always the tabloid headlines. Um, The Weekly World News and the National Enquirer were the two big tabloidy, trashy newspapers that were by every single grocery store checkout as you left. And there was always some headline there about Bigfoot. You know, some woman saying I had Bigfoot's baby or any number of other like crazy out of this world headlines. So, of course, you think it's a big joke. And then when I was a kid, there was a movie that came out called Harry and the Hendersons, which I think a lot of people are are probably familiar with, which was basically this family goes camping and they hit something on the drive home. And that something turns out to be a Bigfoot. So I won't give anything else away because (laughs) people might want to watch it. But those were kind of the two touchstones I had for Bigfoot. And, you know, you'd be out camping and someone would make the joke, oh, what if that's Bigfoot over there? But the Patterson-Gimlin film was something I found out about later. Because I think I can remember seeing that when I was a kid and it being really powerful, you know, this kind of jerky, grainy footage. And I look back at it on YouTube now and I don't know if it's just the power of suggestion or whatever, but I can't help but feel it's someone just dressed up in a monkey suit. That seems to be one of the prevailing theories, but there's three guys at least who say that they were the man in the monkey suit. And also, where's the suit? That's the big question, too. Like, who's got that? No one seems to be able to to produce it. So I don't know. I, you know. I'm not sold on that particular video, but the fact that there's still so much mystery surrounding it even now is kind of the thing that raises my eyebrows a little bit in terms of of that film. Plus, it was the 60s, so it was a lot harder to fake video then than it is now. But it's fair to say that you were or you are quite skeptical about Bigfoot. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty fair to say. I will say this, I'm a lot more open-minded to the possibility of it than I was, but I haven't seen anything yet that really convinces me that it is out there, that it's a real creature, flesh and blood and it just happens to be very good at hiding from us. Um the evidence has not yet come forth, whereas, you know, I, I've never seen a mountain lion in real life either, but I know that there, there's enough evidence there for me to be convinced that mountain lions are real. So how did you go from reading these lurid headlines and things like the National Enquirer to actually making a podcast about the subject? What was the impetus, the motivation there? That was entirely because of this relative of mine. So I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was working for the uh, the equivalent of Radio New Zealand in DC called NPR, and flipping through the through the newspaper, the Washington Post, and then happened to see this article about this guy who had donated his body to the Smithsonian, which I thought was really weird, and he had the same last name as me. So I start reading the article, and then probably about two thirds of the way through, there's this sort of throwaway section about how this man, Grover Krantz, used to drive around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and a rifle looking for Bigfoot. And I thought, what a weirdo. Like, who is this guy? And he's a he's a tenured professor of anthropology at a well-known university. He seems to be well-respected in the field of anthropology based on some of the other stuff I read in that article. And yet here he is chasing after Bigfoot. So first I had to find out 
who he was, like, were we actually related? And that was verified by my grandfather who remembered him from family picnics when they were kids. And he would come and measure people's heads with calipers. So this was a guy who was clearly (laughs) always into science and always into human anatomy and evolution and that kind of thing. And then when I, you know, I find out we're related then I kind of, well, that just kind of sealed the deal. I felt like I had to do something more. I had to research this somehow. You know, how does a man who is so devoted to science also think Bigfoot is real? And that raises the question, well, maybe there was more to it than I initially thought. It would have been much more difficult for you, wouldn't it, to make the doco if you hadn't been related to Grover Krantz, because it really opened a few doors for you, didn't it? It meant people kind of took you seriously, if you like. Yeah, there was kind of two sides to that. First, I think the interest was largely because of Grover. Like, I don't know that I would have become as interested in the subject matter if I hadn't had this relative. So that was the first step. And then the second step is, yeah, it it definitely opened doors. He was very well respected in the Bigfoot community. He was sort of seen as one of the pioneers of Bigfoot research done in a, in a scientific way and was considered one of the, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery is how, how they refer to him, which is one of my favorite phrases of all time. It just, it's just very funny. But anyway, there, it was him and three other gentlemen who were very well respected for the work that they had done in regards to trying to solve the Bigfoot question. And I would go to symposiums and lectures and, you know, weekend conferences, and I'd have my little name tag on and it would say Laura Krantz. And people would walk up to me and they'd be like, Krantz, are you related to Grover? And I would say yes. And it was like, I I felt famous. Like it was pretty crazy how people reacted to that name because he is so well respected and so many people had known him or known of him. You say a few times in the podcast that, you know, we humans want to believe in Sasquatch. Why do you think that is? I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I know I came out of this really wanting Sasquatch to be real, really wanting to believe. You know, part of it, I think, is this idea that there's another sort of human-esque species walking around on the planet. Once upon a time, there may have been as many as eight or nine different hominid human-esque type species that were walking around. And now, supposedly, there's just one, and it's us. And I think, you know, you kind of wonder, well, what would it be like if this other species were out there? Are they... Would this would this other species be like the road not taken? They they chose not to put pants on and start farming and pay taxes. Instead, they decided to stay in the woods. Is that our alternate reality? So I think there's some interest, both anthropologically, evolutionarily speaking, from that standpoint, and also just as kind of a, a romantic idea of, you know, the road not taken. I think, too, a lot of people really like the mystery of it. You know, think of all the sort of odd mysteries that persist in in human folklore. Like I know in the US particularly, there's a lot of stuff around Roswell and mm. aliens and you know there there was the Bermuda Triangle for a while. That was yeah. a huge story when the I Loch was, Ness was, Monster would be another exactly, one. Exactly. Yeah. That's another good one. There's supposedly some, you know, relict dinosaur living down in Africa somewhere. So those kinds of stories are appealing to people because I think they like the element of surprise. I like the idea that that the world is not so explored and tamed and mapped out that something like this could still exist right under our noses. Laura Krantz, who presented and produced Wild Thing. And you can find links to that and a list of some of Laura's favourite podcasts on our website now. rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour is the address. 
He might only be 11 years old, but Ty Paul still wants to answer some of life's big questions, like what happens after we die and how can we fix climate change. From the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, his son of Ty Asks Why. There's a saying I always hear whenever I'm stuck making a decision. I remember this one time. I was at the farmer's market and I had two dollars in my hand. I'm like, do I want to buy the maple candy or the cookie? Do I want the sweet, sugary maple candy? Do I want the soft, doughy cookie? Maple candy, cookie. It was just so hard to choose. My friend come over and just be like, Ty, why are you standing in the middle of the farmer's market? And I was like, I can't, I can't decide. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, dude, just trust your gut. Should I trust my gut? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions that you just want to get answered. How do we fix climate change? What happens after we die? What is love? Why do we dream? And should you trust your gut? My gut is this big pile of intestines that digests my food. I don't really know what's to be trusted there. I know that I get these feelings in my gut, like butterflies when I'm nervous. Or when I'm hungry, like my stomach will like cramp and feel like squeezy. But like, why? Is my gut able to make decisions and like tell me what to do? That seems pretty crazy because that means it has a brain. And that, that seems crazy, you know? It's just like, it's my intestines. But like, maybe there is a brain in my gut. But at the same time, it's kind of far-fetched and wacky. So I decided to take this theory to the park and see what my friends had to say. Do you think there's a brain in your stomach? No! No! Why? why? Because your brain is in your head. I think your brain makes everything you feel possible. There couldn't be a brain because there wouldn't be space, or else you'd have like a big lump on either side. My feelings and anxieties and stresses, they, they come from here. My gut. Your stomach does not think. Except when it's hungry. I think there is some sort of connection. But I imagine my cells and that stuff as separate creatures that are like, wah, wah, wah. It's really, really complicated. You know, I think Kaya is on to something. It, it is, like, really complicated. And I did a little bit of research, and apparently there are little creatures in our guts, and they're called microbes. I remember reading this one factoid from the Science Center saying that all the microbes in your body weigh about a kilogram, and, you know, that's crazy. And these microbes, they're apparently all over our body, and they're, like, inside us everywhere. And if we're supposed to trust our guts then does that mean that we have to trust all of the little microbes? Do the microbes have a brain? Are they sentient? And as I was doing this research, I saw this scientist called Dr. Embryot Hyde. For my PhD, I studied the microbiome. So I decided to call her up. What is a microbiome? So you can't see it because, well, for one, it's inside of you, but for two, 
they're invisible to the naked eye. So it's all of the microbes that live in and on your body. So that includes bacteria, viruses, fungi, some parasites. And it's not just the microbes, but it's the things that they do in your body. So the microbiome in our gut is responsible for a lot of processes in our body. But like, I wanted to know, do the collection of microbes form like a brain? Your gut is full of neurons, which are the same exact cells that are in your brain. And there's this amazing nerve called the vagus nerve, which connects your brain to your digestive tract. And your brain can send signals directly to your gut. And your gut can send signals directly back to your brain through this nerve. And they're always communicating and talking to each other. And because of that, a lot of people like to call this system the second brain in your gut. But I think it's probably more appropriate just to call it an extension of your nervous system. Does our gut brain have like a conscience and think sentiently? We don't fully know the answer to that yet. Microbes live in your gut and they help affect this communication between your gut and your brain. And people are wondering if maybe microbes have a mind of their own. And if they do, then maybe, you know, you could extrapolate a little bit and say, well, if the microbes have a mind of their own and they're affecting how my gut is talking to the brain, then maybe that could be the conscious aspect of it. But we just don't know yet. Some of Ty Asks Why from the CBC, and that's from an episode called Should We Trust Our Gut, produced by Veronica Simmons and Yasmin Maturin. Each week, the media is full of stories about the latest medical research, promising new treatments, clinical trials, food, drugs, supplements. There's a boundless appetite for advice on how to live a longer, more healthy life. But how can we health consumers tell what evidence we should rely on and what's just based on bad science or worse, on spin coming from the drug companies? The BBC show Inside Health, hosted by Dr Mark Porter, tries to keep you up to date. As well as being a medical journalist, Mark's also a practising GP, so his focus is on the business end of the healthcare system, how to give patients the best advice. In the show, you'll hear directly from patients and people affected by particular health conditions, and Mark's often joined by regular contributor Margaret McCartney. She's become a bit of a podcast favourite of mine. She's a straight-talking GP based in Glasgow and the scourge of any glib or ill-prepared researcher. She doesn't hold back and she'll cast an often sceptical eye over their findings and how well these might translate to the doctor's surgery. Recent episodes have discussed pedometers, running and knee health and macular degeneration. Here's one focusing on the common practice of taking a daily low dose of aspirin as a way of protecting against heart attack or stroke. Coming up in the next half an hour, strokes and a new approach to treating them that can help where current methods can't. If you have a large blocked drain in a street and you try to put in some drain powder, that doesn't really work because you need somebody to go in mechanically, a plumber, to take it out. So that's what basically we had to do, basically go into the brain vessel and take the clot out. We continue our guide to what happens when people lose the mental capacity to make key decisions. This week we discuss best interest and lasting power of attorney. And Margaret McCartney reflects on a much-discussed case that's currently being heard by the Court of Appeal, the striking off of Dr Bawa Garba following the death of six-year-old Jack Adcock. 
But first, aspirin. If you're taking low-dose aspirin, typically 75 milligrams a day, to protect against heart attack or stroke and you haven't been weighed, then there's a good chance that you're on the wrong dose and not as protected as you or your doctor might think. That's the startling conclusion of new research suggesting that the current one-size-fits-all approach is wrong. Peter Rothwell, Professor of Clinical Neurology at the University of Oxford, led the team who made the discovery. I think at the moment a lot of people are taking aspirin. Nearly a billion people worldwide take regular aspirin, usually to prevent vascular events, heart attacks and strokes. And it looks as though the majority of them are probably taking the wrong dose. Why? So far, pretty much all clinical practice and all clinical trials have adopted a one-dose-fits-all approach. So no matter what size you are, how much you weigh, you get the same dose of aspirin. And what we found is that, in fact, that doesn't seem to be effective, that if you're over 70 kilograms, then low-dose aspirin, which is the, the standard now in most countries, is ineffective in preventing vascular events, but still causes bleeding. And yet most people... Men and women in the UK are probably over 70 kilograms. Certainly about half of women, particularly if they're taking uh, aspirin for vascular reasons, are often over 70 kilos and certainly three quarters of men. They're on a tablet. Hundreds of thousands, millions potentially of people in the UK are on a drug that's not working for them and may actually be doing them some harm in terms of side effects. Certainly it's not reducing heart attacks and strokes and it, and it is increasing the risk of bleeding at, uh, at the higher body weight. Which begs the question, and why this research wasn't done before? It seems a fairly basic error to give a one-dose-fits-all to people and not to account for their weight. In retrospect, it does, and it's interesting to think how we got to this place in that uh, the early trials used much higher doses of aspirin, 500, 1,000 milligrams a day, and it was then shown in, in laboratory studies that the way in which we think aspirin works, which is that it blocks the sticky cells, the platelets in the blood, seem to occur with much lower doses. And uh, people did a lot of laboratory work to show, in fact, you can block the platelets with the sort of doses we now use. But we didn't check to make sure that that effect on the platelets was really mirrored by an effect on heart attacks and strokes. People assumed that this surrogate outcome of what the platelets did in the test tube was actually going to tell us reliably about what the platelets did in the body. And it, and it looks as though that probably isn't the case. So we've historically been focusing on the stickiness, if you like, of, of, of the platelets. And that's the protective effect against heart attack and stroke. But actually, that's just a marker. What We didn't actually look at outcomes. Well, exactly right. It's what people sometimes call a surrogate outcome. We, we think it uh, probably correlates with the clinical benefits, but you really can't be sure. And we've been caught out in medicine many times by focusing on surrogate outcomes that haven't turned out to be correct. So what are the implications for the way that we use aspirin in, in the UK? What you're suggesting is that most people who are taking it to prevent a heart attack and stroke are probably on too little. I think if you're certainly if you're taking it in what people call the secondary prevention setting after you've had a, a heart attack or a stroke already and so the risk of a, a further event is quite high, then it's, it's certainly important to get the dose right. And if you are under 70 kilograms, then you're probably on the right dose. I think if you're over 70 kilograms, it would make sense to either take double dose or take a low dose twice a day. And from doing that, you wouldn't really get any more in the way of side effects, but at least you'd get more reassurance that you were getting the benefit as well. What was the relationship between weight and side effects in your research? Because the side effects can be serious. I'm talking 
potentially catastrophic bleeding. It's unusual, but it can happen. It's an important point in the sense that even though people over 70 kilograms didn't get any benefit from taking low-dose aspirin, they still had the increased risk of bleeding. That didn't disappear till at least 90 kilograms. So you could certainly argue that between 70 and 90 kilograms with low-dose aspirin, we might well be doing more harm than good. This sort of effect is likely to skew the data that we've been looking at for decades, is it not? I mean, one of the problems with aspirin is that there's always been a bit of an argument about who should have it and who shouldn't. And if we're giving, say, half the people the wrong dose... It's not surprising it doesn't appear to be that effective. Absolutely right, and it it explains some strange observations in the past. For example, people have found that, looking at the trials, aspirin seemed to prevent stroke in women, but not in men, which didn't make much sense. But of course, when you think of it in terms of body weight, that makes very good sense. And different trials have produced different results overall. But then when you look at the makeup of the trials, the average weight across the different trials people have done of aspirin ranges from 60 kilograms to 85 kilograms. So you can imagine that the the overall trial result will differ quite a lot. Another area that's created a lot of excitement with aspirin is its ability potentially to prevent some forms of cancer. Was that looked at in your study? We did, yeah. We were keen to see whether the uh, the largest effect of aspirin on cancer, which is the effect on colorectal cancer, whether that was also weight-related. And, and we found that, in fact, it was in, in a very similar way to the, the effect on vascular events. So low-dose aspirin was effective in preventing colorectal cancer below 70 kilograms, but not above. Higher doses were effective at somewhat higher weights. So in, in both cases, it was, again, weight-dependent. Peter Rothwell, and there's a link to his research on the Inside Health page of the Radio 4 website. And just for clarity, low dose is generally 75 milligrams a day. That's a quarter of a normal aspirin tablet. Now, from preventing strokes to treating them. What's this? The ball. My ball. Give me that, Daddy Dobby. Charlotte Smith was just 27 and pregnant with her second child when, out of the blue, she had a stroke. Early on the Saturday morning, I woke up with a really bad headache and then it was round about lunchtime when I decided just to take a walk out and meet my partner in town with my four-year-old. I just put the headache down to part of being pregnant with my son. I got halfway into town. Silly as it sounds, I kind of felt drunk. I lost the feeling in my right side of my body and then I collapsed in the middle of the street. I was in and out of consciousness. Next thing I know, I'm waking up and there's two girls stood over me. And my partner at the time asked the girls to call me an ambulance. I was in Telford Hospital for about an hour so they could work out what they could do with me because obviously I wasn't allowed the normal drug that they give everybody else because I was pregnant. So um, I got taken to Stoke and then the procedure was done within an hour. Charlotte underwent mechanical thrombectomy, a novel way of treating the most common form of stroke where a clot blocks one of the arteries supplying the brain. Instead of the more established method, which involves giving drugs, thrombolytics or clot busters to restore normal blood flow, by dissolving the clot, mechanical thrombectomy grabs the blockage and pulls it out. Charlotte was treated in the stroke unit at the University Hospitals of North Midlands NHS Trust in Stoke by consultant neuroradiologist Dr Sanjeev Nayak, who'd been busy doing the same for other patients just before I met him. I was up till five in the morning doing this thrombectomy cases. There were two in the night last night. We had a couple of patients who had severe stroke. You know, they had one of the major vessels of the brain occluded by a blood clot. And usually these patients have a very bad outcome. Either they have severe disability or death. 
and they were referred to a hospital for mechanical thrombectomy. And from what I heard earlier, so far the outcomes have been very good. So you've been up most of the night? Yes, I went home at five in the morning. So Sanjeev, what's actually involved? The story started in 2009 when I started at Stoke. We realised there there's a large subset of patients with severe stroke. The intravenous thrombolysis, from the evidence we have, worked in a very small percentage of patients. The thrombolysis drugs, the drugs that we use at the moment to dissolve clot. Absolutely. They usually worked in around 20 or 25% of patients. Most of these patients who had this kind of stroke usually either died or had disability. And for us, I mean, this kind of uh, outcome wasn't acceptable. I had done a fellowship in Austria, in Salzburg, you know, when this actually came up in Europe. So I had this experience and I brought this experience with me and we decided with our local team that we have to do something different for these patients. Now, for the people who are listening to this, just to give a simple explanation what it means, like if you have a large blocked drain in a street and you try to put in some drain powder, that doesn't really work because you need somebody to go in mechanically, a plumber, to take it out. So that's what... Basically, we had to do basically go into the brain vessel and take the clot out. And that actually made a big difference to the patient's lives. And using the analogy of the block drain, what you're saying is that the thrombolysis drugs are are a bit like pouring drain cleaner on a huge blockage. It simply can't do the job. Absolutely. And what sort of proportion of patients having stroke coming to a unit like yours might be eligible for this? How many of them had these big clots? At the moment, we treat around 110 patients a year which is 10% of our stroke population. So I would say around 10% of the stroke population would be eligible for such treatment. Mark Porter speaking to consultant neuroradiologist Dr Sanjeev Nayak for Inside Health from BBC Radio 4. Thanks to Erica Wright and Liz Tui for their help in bringing that to you. And you can find a link to that episode and information on how to find many more and subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. The author and journalist John Ronson made the podcast The Butterfly Effect about the many consequences of the rise in free online pornography. He's also written a book about online shaming and abuse called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. These two worlds meet in The Last Days of August, his new show telling the story of August Ames, an adult actor and model who took her own life in December 2017. This happened after she'd posted some Twitter comments that some people thought were homophobic, and it provoked a social media backlash, which included the suggestion from a fellow adult performer that she should apologise or take a cyanide pill. The social media firestorm was the cause of her death, according to Ames's husband, the porn director Kevin Moore. But Ronson and his producer, Lena Mazitsis, do a masterful job in suggesting that there were many other factors at play. And they don't do it by creating false tension or a fake mystery either. Early on, they make it clear that no one is suspected of Ames's murder. And just a warning before I play you this clip, I just want to say that it deals with mature subject matter and it's got some discussion about suicide, just in case there are any younger listeners around. Kevin says he has no doubt as to the reason why she killed herself. If she hadn't been bullied, she'd be alive right now. It was 24 hours after it started. How can you not see a relationship there? She was bullied by social justice warriors. 
Kevin has written a statement about August's death. He wants to post it today, straight after this interview. In it, he names names, like the gay performer Jackson Wheeler, who wrote the cyanide tweet. And he writes a lot about Jessica Drake. Much of the statement is about her. Quote, Miss Drake caused irreparable harm by using her followers and stature in an attempt to silence and bully a young, impressionable woman. Kevin wants to post the statement today because Jessica Drake is hosting a porn awards ceremony in a few days and he hopes it'll shame the awards people into cancelling her. I mean, it's all set to go. I showed it to your producer. Mm. Um, I would like to put it out today because I need to... I need to fight back. It's time for the industry to accept responsibility for their hand in this. It isn't my place, but I feel I need to suggest to Kevin that he doesn't name Jessica Drake or Jackson Wheeler in his statement. You know, when you name particular people and you're calling out particular individuals, there's a couple of moments where I just sort of worried about, gosh, you know, is this is this going a little too far? Like, who knows what this might unleash? You know, I'm not going to deny this. I'm angry. I lost the woman I love to a bunch of people's stupid opinions on social media. So am I supposed to just roll over? Take it? Just say, oh, well. At what point do you stand up? I don't know. I don't really know what I'm saying, except for the fact that I'm, I, you know, it's really strong and it's going to be like setting off a hand grenade. And is that definitely the right thing to do? Yeah, I think the business might need a hand grenade. A few hours after talking to me, Kevin releases his statement. He calls it The Truth. He posts it on August's Twitter account for maximum impact. August had 621,000 followers, whereas Kevin has 2,700. Later that day, my producer Lena messages Kevin to ask if he's feeling okay. Yeah, I am, he messages back. Some men just want to watch the world burn. He's quoting Batman. Michael Caine's character says it of the Joker, the kind of man who robs jewels just to throw them away. Chaos for the sake of chaos. Can you hear me, John? Yes, I can. Shoot away. I mean, the kind of guy I am, I'm just going to tell you everything 100%. I had a plan for this story. I would interview the people who piled in on August. I'd find out what was happening in their lives that led them to that moment. Any question you answer, I'll give it to you. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know Mercedes leading into this. This is Jackson Wheeler, the man who wrote the cyanide tweet. The world is awaiting your apology or for you to swallow a cyanide pill. The tweet's famous now, immortalised in headlines like this one from Britain's Daily Mirror. Porn star was told to take a cyanide pill hours before her death. Even when I heard she had died the next morning, my thought process was, why? Like, who kills himself over being told that they've you know, made a wrong statement? It didn't make sense to me. But the whole thing was, was like, wow, there has to be a lot more to this than her just being shamed for making a homophobic comment that she refused to take down even after the community said that that's what we fight. What she said, the way she said it was bullshit. 
So I would approach this whole thing the same exact way. If you're going to be adult enough to have a half a million followers and be a big girl porn star, listen, she's younger than I am. She should know damn well that the social media platform is not a place for sunshine and kisses. Hold on. I got to get my, uh, my mini page. Going to get Small, relax. Come on, pups. Inside. Is that a mini pig? Yeah. My son at some point is going to be in high school. You, you know, people are going to know what I do. That kind of stigma right there mm-hmm. is the kind of shit that bullies actually read and think is true. Somehow find out that my son's dad is a gay porn star and he's getting shoved in the lockers. I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad for, for you know, like she, she wasn't bullied. She literally was just her ass handed to her. And then Jackson tells me something about the cyanide tweet that I didn't expect and didn't know whether to believe. My tweet was sent out at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Uh huh. She was discovered dead three hours before that tweet was made. Oh, really? This is the truth. Yeah, now, I have, I if, you wanna, no if you want to, if you want to, no, of course nobody wants to say that because then I can't be the scapegoat. Jackson says that a few weeks before I contacted him, August's brother, James, had done the same to confront him about his apparent role in his sister's death. My response to him was, you know, I'm actually more disappointed in you guys because I don't know her. I didn't know her growing up. I mean, I feel like a piece of shit for coming at me because it's like, listen, look, I understand that you're upset your sister's dead. I would be too. But I would be actually looking for the real reasons for why. Not going on a goddamn witch hunt and wasting my energy. How did her brother respond to that? Uh, he ended up blocking me, but I heard from another freaking account that I devastated him. A few weeks pass, and then it's the AVN, the Adult Video News Expo and Awards Ceremony at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. It's the biggest night in the porn calendar. One porn person described it to me as it being like porn prom. Quite a few porn women here are wearing T-shirts of Kevin's design. It's a drawing of August's face, but looking like a skull, and underneath are the last words she tweeted you all. Kevin has been encouraging porn people to Instagram themselves wearing these shirts as a memorial and, I think, as a way of shaming those he says contributed to her death, like Jessica Drake. Everyone's downstairs in the big room off the casino where the fans queue for autographs. You know, the butt plug, it's got a tail, makes you look like a, you know, like a horse. Everyone, that is, except Jessica Drake. She's upstairs in her room on the 11th floor, refusing interview requests. Okay. <sighs> Just you be comfortable and I'll follow you guys. With yeah. But then I get word that she's willing to talk to me. Do I start from the beginning? Yeah. I've held off on talking to anybody or posting about it because it's a horrible situation. I went back six months of my Twitter during all of this. And I'm like, was I ever a bully to anybody? That's not what I do. Like, I don't do that. Um, a tissue. It was only after I'd spoken to Kevin that I'd looked properly at Jessica Drake's tweets about August. There was something very unexpected about them. She had written, without naming August... If you're eliminating folks based on the fact that they may have done gay or crossover work, your logic is seriously flawed. 
There were a couple of other tweets, but none of them were worse than that one. It was all far more innocuous than I'd anticipated. Of course, sometimes it's the insults wrapped up as gentle rebukes that can hurt the most, but they really did seem mild. I can't help feeling surprised that Kevin had concentrated so much of his attack on Jessica Drake. And there's something else. We fact-checked Jackson Wheeler's claim that his cyanide tweets were sent after August had died, and it turns out he's right. August could never have seen it. Some of episode one of The Last Days of August, presented and produced by John Ronson and Lena Mazitsis, and that's available exclusively via Audible. And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. We've been listening to Wild Thing, Ty Asks Why, Inside Health, and The Last Days of August. If you've heard something great recently, then do let me know at pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll be trying to share as many of your recommendations as I can on future shows. In the meantime, from me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening and I'll be back to share some more favourites uh, same time next week. Until then, see you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.